Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, my friend, we are at it again at the No One Fights Alone podcast. Just coming off of a uh, whirlwind tour from LA. How you feeling, buddy? I feel like we we traded off having the miserable travel experience that we had. Like I'm getting in at 4:30 on uh, Monday morning, um, and you are. What time did you get home last night? Got home at 8:30. I'm dragging a little bit. I got. I did get home without my luggage as well. I'm looking forward to them delivering at any time. That's the joy of traveling. Oh, it's a nightmare. But I'm excited for our guest today. We have. I. We talked for so long about lacking on the fireside uh, of the community, and I feel like we've really turned that around recently. And this is going to top all of that off because. As far as I know, this is one of the biggest, most popular, you know, treatment centers in the community. I've known about them since I started. They were always kind of the gold standard, uh, and I'm really happy to have them on. I feel the same, and without uh, any hesitation, let's just uh, welcome on Molly Jones with the IAFF Center of Excellence. Molly's a licensed social worker and a clinical uh, outreach coordinator for Center of Excellence. Welcome to the No One Fights Alone, Molly. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and have this conversation with you guys. Well, without uh, any hesitation whatsoever, let's dive into a little bit about uh, Center of Excellence. But with that, look, who is Molly? Tell us a little bit about, and, I, and I'm partial to this because I know you're an Oklahoma girl. Yes, I am. So I'll start there. I am originally from Oklahoma, Oklahoma City and uh, born and raised until I made the jump to Colorado. So I currently live in Denver, but I spent a lot of time in my early days of my social work career in Oklahoma and got my footing in the door as far as helping people and navigating resources and really seeing that in a lot of different populations, there's a huge need for really quality providers, both on an outpatient and inpatient basis, and ended up getting my master's of social work from the University of Oklahoma so I could do even more to help people and fill some of those gaps that I saw, and eventually made my way out to Colorado, started working in inpatient psych and doing some direct practice care with people of all different backgrounds and ages struggling with lots of different behavioral health challenges and got burnt out as a lot of people do, whether it's a helping profession of, you know, the social work kind of realm or even in a first responder sort of setting. I think a lot of us can relate to the same things that sitting with people in emergency situations and experiencing really difficult stuff um, is not always the easiest thing to do. So made the switch to business development and community outreach. I was working for a uh, drug and alcohol rehab here in Denver that was just general population, civilian focused, and advanced recovery systems reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to work with firefighters. And I said, I have no idea about firefighters. And they said, well, it's going to be a lot of public speaking and working with their labor union. And uh, you'll get to travel all over the country. And I said, well, I'm really afraid of public speaking and I hate airplanes, but I guess I'll give it a go. And I have been doing this now for four years. And 
have found my niche, you know, when you're in social work school or even in undergrad or just trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what that looks like. And I certainly didn't when I left graduate school, but finally feel like I found my place helping first responders. So that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. I do community outreach and help people gain awareness to first responder specific resources, whether it's the Center of Excellence or other programs or resources out there. So in that kind of marketing side of things, and then uh, help people get into treatment and connected. We vet resources all across the country. So I talk with a lot of therapists and find out what they do and how they do it. And then the coolest part of my job, I think, is the educational side of it. So I spend a lot of time teaching firefighters specifically, but other groups of first responders too sometimes about uh, things like PTSD, suicidality, why people turn to addiction or substance uses, substance use struggles or how how those develop, Um, talking to families about why their first responders struggling and all just trying to help people gain awareness to the struggles that are so unique to the first responder world. So that's me in a nutshell. I love it. I, I love that you are able to to travel and spread awareness. I think a really important question is, and this could be knowledge for a lot of people that are listening, but what are what are some of the barriers that you're seeing to firefighters receiving treatment? And and when I say treatment, I mean individual therapy, you know, general outpatient, whatever it could be. What are some of those barriers? Well, you know, it's been interesting because I've been at this for four years, which doesn't seem like that long of a time frame, but when you think about culture changes and um, just progress forward in the the mental health space, that's a long time. And I would say when I started out, it was a lot of external stigmas. So organizational culture and people not buying into the idea that PTSD was real. I used to have that debate all the time with uh, firefighters. And what's been really cool is over these, these years, people have shifted their mindset and now they believe that, yeah, this is a a thing. People are struggling. People are stressed out. There's all of these challenges that they face on a day-to-day basis. And now I would say probably the biggest hurdle still is stigma, but it's more internal stigma. So it's this idea of at least what I think is I'm the helper. I'm putting myself in the firefighter's shoes. I'm the helper. I'm the fixer. I'm the one that people call in an emergency situation. So I should know how to process these really abnormal things that I see, or I should know how to help myself. And if I can't, then that means that I have some sort of inherent flaw or deficit. Um, And in reality, I just don't think many people are taught how to manage those things. So I think that's probably number one. And I think second to that is the healthcare system. And I don't want to dive too deep into that kind of political conversation, but the behavioral healthcare system, I think is set up um, and maybe it's to no fault of anyone, but it's set up to be really confusing and really overwhelming and not knowing 
who to call, you know, what my insurance plan even means or what are all these numbers and figures and it doesn't cover substance use. What do you mean? Um, so I think that kind of systemic issue is a problem, but then kind of subcategory to that would be the lack of education that providers have to the uniqueness that first responders and in that, you know, different professions in that community uh, have and what they bring to the treatment space. And then I think the third one's probably the family. People don't want to, you know, leave their families and go away for treatment. Um, Or maybe there's a breakdown just in family dynamics and, and the system and that becomes the focus and people get divorced or separated. And instead of, you know, turning towards the providers that can help. So kind of three-pronged, I guess, in, in a way, in my purview. You know, recently we were uh, we were actually speaking with uh, a firefighter that that he himself actually openly admitted, uh, I didn't believe this to be real uh, until it happened to me. I didn't believe that uh, uh, PTS uh, could actually even exist. I thought it was somebody out there just kind of making it up. Uh, and, and so I, what, what you say about the internal piece of it really resonates. I think we, as a, as a culture within ourselves, firefighters, law enforcement, veterans corrections, I mean, there's a, there's a piece there where it, it can't be real because I haven't experienced it and I've experienced a lot. I think, uh, you know, that, that portion really resonates, uh, with me personally, just, uh, myself. And then what I'm hearing out there often. Uh, times than the people we're working with. Well, the word he used was weak. He thought people that went through these issues were just weak, right. suicidal ideation, substance abuse, any of those things. I mean, Molly, what's your thoughts on that? That's a powerful word. Yeah. You know, I think that's certainly true. And I think that a lot of people, and I don't want to just say first responders, I think people in general, um, tend to think that if you struggle mentally with something, then yeah, that means that you can't kick it. You can't hang. You aren't cut out for this, but I think we fail to recognize all of the kind of extenuating factors that get someone to a position of, of not being able to manage something on their own. I would say too, Brad, and I thought that maybe this is where you were going with that. And maybe you guys tell me if you've heard this, but something that I've heard and recently, probably in the last few years, as people have started to buy into, yes, this is a, a true problem is I get it that, you know, Joe over here could develop PTSD, but I am not going to struggle with that. So that's something that's reserved for someone else. And I tend to think that when we have that mindset of it's never going to be me, we almost create an environment or a space for us to struggle with that because to not struggle with PTSD or to be able to process the traumas that you face or stressors or whatever it may be, you have to be proactive and preventative about it. And that requires some level of, okay, I could succumb to this, or this could become a challenge in my life. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so that I don't. So it's kind of, does that make sense? No, I, I, I am tracking right with you. I, and I, and I do think, um, that the PTSD term has now become a term in and of itself, uh, is, is, 
maybe watered down a, a little bit to where it's become a commonly used term when the reality is uh, that's a that's a disorder, but PTS in and of itself, um, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, has become, a mo- I think, a more useful term. I'd love to have your thoughts on this, but I, uh, I, I think that's where uh, the person that Austin, the firefighter specifically, Austin and I are referring to, that's actually what he was referencing was, uh, this was a moot issue until it became fully frontal to his life. And it's, you know, it was wreaking havoc in his life. And, uh, you know, and you're an educator, you're going out there and talking all across the United States about this and advocating for this as we are. Uh, and oftentimes you get this really air of, well, that's all well and good for them. Uh, but me personally, it's not, a, not I'm, it's not, a, I'm not even going to let it in. Um, and then next thing you know, they're calling you or Austin or I and saying, okay, what's next? So your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I've heard PTSD or PTSI or PTS referred to in so many different ways. And I think for me personally, in my vernacular, I choose to use PTSD because that's the clinical term for it. And I'm have that clinical background, but there is a big push to call PTSD, PTSI. And I get disorder versus injury is so much easier digested. You know, it's, and I get the connotation that comes with the two disorder sounds like, Oh, I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Injury is can be equated to a broken bone and it'll be repaired and everything will get better. So I like that. And and I agree with it. Um, As far as PTS, I think you're exactly right that it it should be used more. And the reason that I think that is because first responders and firefighters, anyone on the front lines of this helping profession, as I like to call it, is going to face some sort of symptom that falls under the category of post-traumatic stress, whether that's a reoccurring unwanted memory. I mean, even in my work as a social worker, some of those things that I've been vicariously traumatized by in my child welfare background or other um, you know, settings that I've worked in, I have unwanted reoccurring memories that I would rather not think of. But does that mean I have PTSD? No, it doesn't. It just means that I'm affected by my job and, and you should be. Um, and even the IFF, the International Association of Firefighters, they have done some research on their membership, really came in the form of an online survey. So nothing that's super scientific, but they polled over 7,000 of their members and they found that almost all of them experience critical stress. So what comes with critical stress? Probably some cognitive issues, some mood changes, some irritability. So almost all of them are experiencing symptoms in those categories of post-traumatic stress. Almost, and I don't want to misquote it, but it's somewhere at the half mark, give or take some percentages, but are experiencing unwanted reoccurring memories. So it's like, we're all going to experience this when you're working with people and working with people in emergency settings. Um, And that's normal. And that's something I talk about in my education is it's actually more abnormal to not feel anything when you see really traumatic, terrible things than it is to have some sort of emotional reaction. So give yourself that, let yourself feel, because that's 
how you get through things. Since we're talking data here, and I, I, you're you're absolutely probably the one to ask about that one. One of the uh, more recent data pieces was that firefighters themselves often uh, have these thoughts of uh, suicidal thoughts more than some of the other uh, first responder cultures and upwards of uh, 40% in the 40% aisle was what I was uh, reading uh, just a few years ago. I haven't seen any sin- anything since then up to date, but that's pretty high. It is. We're talking a lot of firefighters who are impacted by the job that say, you know what? I wonder what it would be like if I just wasn't here anymore. You know, those kind of thoughts. Yeah. Am I, am I, are we still tracking along those same kind of data points? You know, I haven't seen anything here recently that is more up to date. I think the study that you're referring to, um, and if it's not, it's the same numbers, but it's uh, by this guy, a psychologist named uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner, and he studies people who are suicidal because of his own history with it. His dad died by suicide. And he wrote a book called Why People Die by Suicide. He's written some other books as well, but he came up with a theory, the interpersonal theory of suicide. And I think it makes a lot of sense with firefighters specifically. And what that theory says is there's three components. If there's these three components in place, then it's almost certain that someone will make either a near lethal or lethal attempt on their life. And the first is and in no particular order, doesn't have to go this way, but thwarted belongingness, so lack of connection, perceived burdensomeness, so I don't have any purpose, my life isn't worth anything. And then the last one, which I think makes sense specifically with the firefighting community, is acquired capability or habituation to the death, pain, and injury of other people. So when you are running calls on other people's suicides or you're running medical calls or um, providing, you know, life-saving care to people in motor vehicle accidents or other, you know, catastrophic or crisis emergency situations. I think it goes without saying that it's probably easy to contemplate your own mortality or, you know, how you're going to go out or, you know, what your life or death is going to kind of look like. So I think they all really have that habituation to it, which maybe makes them more likely to think about it and maybe be able to go to those kind of dark places in their minds when they feel difficult feelings. So let's, uh, let's jump into our favorite topic on this podcast. It feels like a natural segue into the cultural competency piece of treating somebody and understanding why they feel that way, why they're having those thoughts. I mean, t- talk a little bit about that because I know you're a huge proponent for for that piece specifically. Well, if we're talking suicide, and I'll start there since that's kind of where we segued off from, you know, I think that firefighters, and that's really who I should primarily talk about because that's where most of my experience lies. But with them specifically, you know, many of them are living with passive ideation, which is just this thought of, I wonder what it would be like if, um, and not necessarily putting it into a, a plan or securing any sort of means. So from a cultural stand, culturally competent standpoint, I think any provider that's working with this population needs to understand that these people are 
high functioning and they're resilient and they're also struggling with these types of thoughts and feelings. So we're not going to put them on a 72 hour hold or a 5150 or whatever you call it, you know, in the state that you live in, but we're going to safety plan because they're a highly motivated group that is going to want to do the work that some provider is telling them to do because they want to feel better. So let's put them on a safety plan. Let's get them into therapy. Let's get them connected to a treatment center. Let's do all of these things to really wrap our arms around them, so to speak, and reduce this risk and then treat whatever that underlying issue is. I think, you know, for the run-of-the-mill therapist or someone that's more of a general practitioner and they're working with all sorts of populations, you know, someone comes in and says, hey, I've been having these thoughts of wondering what it would be like if I ran my car off the side of the road because I have been responding to these series of motor motor vehicle accidents. You know, they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, we've got to get this person evaluated and we've got to put them in a psych hospital. And that's just not the case with this group. And you're probably not going to get any buy-in or rapport with them or be able to continue to work with others in this population or in this profession because word will travel very quickly that that person is going to put you on an involuntary hold. So don't go see them. Um, So I think from the suicidal standpoint, that's really important, but there's certainly other aspects of cultural competency that are crucial too. Yeah. Our, our clinical director said something to me when I started working in this, that really rang true is if I put our clients on a psychiatric hold for every single time they talked about suicide, we'd have zero clients. Mm -hmm. And I just, that was really powerful to me because I didn't come from this field. I came from similar to you, substance abuse, different population. And that clicked something into me to make me understand a little bit more and in, in deeper into the culture itself. I think that not only would you not have clients because people wouldn't trust you, but when I think about why first responders die by suicide at this higher rate than other types of death. I think some of that is because they're afraid to admit that they're struggling. So then they continue with their uh, doing their best to manage their depression or their PTSD and their risk of suicide keeps going up and up and up. And then before you know it, they they see no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no hope. And so they end up taking their life. So you have to come at it if you're going to be that true helping provider from this sense of, okay, here's what we're dealing with. Here are the options on the table. What's going to be the best fit for this person based on what they know. First responders know how to answer those questions about, you know, are you feeling suicidal or, you know, have you made any attempts or what have you? Cause they're asking the community those questions. So you've got to be really skilled at how you approach them and can't just treat them like anyone else. And to follow that up, hence the culturally competent uh, piece that you're referencing, uh, it's it's very important. It's vital. It's, it's vital that uh, anyone working with this community knows and understands what that is. I was just going to add a piece to, uh, to Austin's uh, narrative there that Within this culture, I, and and I can speak to me personally, there's a really a early on resolution that you are in a uh, environment that your life is on the line. You're 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 making a um, a what's the right word I'm looking for here a, a connection with the fact that okay I could possibly and 
I'm staring at death anyway. So you've already made this kind of a connection with uh, the fact that you could lose your life in the line of duty. So it's embracing this death piece already. Uh, whereas I think that lends itself to uh, having those thoughts that you were referencing of driving down the road. I can just, you know, veer off and what would that look like? Uh, it doesn't look that bad because I've already made uh, an amends with my own life to because I nearly lost it last week on a call or something of that framework. For sure. I agree with that completely. I mean, and that's kind of what I mean when I say they probably think about their own mortality or come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. It's probably a better way to describe that on a regular basis. So it's not that death isn't, that they're not afraid of death or that it's, you know, not something that they think about. But I like the way that you said that they're just accustomed to the reality of it. So if, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd change gears here a little bit and just uh, um, reference back to one of the points that you made, because I think it is a difficult conversation to have. And I don't want to make it political either, but referencing your point of the healthcare system and how difficult it is to navigate some of that. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on uh, how, how people navigate something in regards to um, advocating for their own health uh, are there some tricks? Are there some tips? Are there some kind of go-to places to learn more about what that looks like? Uh, because these are difficult paths to walk uh, of, of uh, just even getting into therapy uh, and not even talking about residential treatment, just, just looking for a therapist. You know, how do I, how do I do this kind of stuff and how do I connect with my insurance coverage to make it, make sure it's covered uh, is it, is the department going to find out about it? All these little things really become burdensome and overwhelming early on. You're like, ah, fuck it. I'm out. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I would say start early, get involved before a crisis develops, know what your options are and what those possible avenues that you may need to go down look like and what the action is required for each one of those before something happens. And, you know, I think getting, into or becoming better educated, I guess, on, um, you know, what your department offers like EAPs. Everyone thinks EAP sucks and sometimes it does. Most of the time it does, but I have found and been and have worked with several EAPs that don't and that are actually super comprehensive and go above and beyond and are highly educated providers. But because there's the stigma within the city or department that they're affiliated with, that those people don't know Jack, they don't get utilized. So, um, you know, find out what's available, make those calls ahead of time and um, you know, find out what a, a, the wait time is going to look like. How many sessions do you get? Is this covered or, or extended to your dependents? You know, have those sorts of fact-finding conversations. I handle a lot of calls from all types of first responders saying who is vetted in our area that you would recommend, and they keep those resource lists on hand. So that way, if they need it or a peer needs it or whatever that looks like, they already have the list ready to go and can point people in the right direction. Um, I think too, as far as insurance coverage, you know, you can call and find out what your behavioral health coverage looks like. I think some of the saddest conversations that I've had with people is the 
their crisis, they're at rock bottom. The crisis is already there. They probably should have gone to treatment a month ago and they're just now calling and we have to tell them you have no substance use coverage on your plan. The only place that you can get treatment is in a hospital or maybe you don't have any at all. Um, you know, unfortunately I've seen that too. So knowing what your, your plan covers is a really good rule of thumb. And just having that information ahead of time is super important. Working with the firefighters labor union, the IFF, you know, something that they are able to do that we always encourage them um, to do is lobby and negotiate for things that don't make sense for your, you know, insurance plan and um, have the, use your negotiation powers for behavioral health. It doesn't have to just be reserved for, you know, budgets and and things like that, even though it does definitely definitely fall under their budgets. But I think just getting involved and being preventative and knowing what's out there and being proactive about it is the best position for you to, for for everyone to be in. I think from a standpoint of, of, of looking at a go-to, obviously uh, IFF is a great resource for uh, first responders as a whole. There's uh, the peer support community seems really solid. uh, And the expectation is for that peer support community to actually have these uh, resources or information or uh, um, uh, data, if you will, to be able to provide maybe a therapist list to provide uh, some of those as well. So I think that's uh, I think that's a great a great piece. With uh, and and then your third bullet being the education component, which I heard you say in your introduction and and our conversation, obviously uh, in our uh, when you and I first met. Uh, is a strong component of what you do. Would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, your education piece, what that looks like? Maybe if it's, if we, I mean, I don't want to ask anything that we're not privy to, but uh, I think this is, I heard your passion coming through the phone when we first talking about, uh, when we first talked about this. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So I have the opportunity and the privilege really um, to go all around the country and teach peer support teams. I do a lot of peer support work. I'm actually on the IFF's ninth district peer support team as their clinical coordinator. Um, That covers Ohio, or not Ohio, um, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. I don't know where Ohio came from in my brain, but um, not in the West. And um, do a lot of education there and in other parts of the country too, uh, teaching peer support team members how to build better skills and be better peer supporters. We also do departmental trainings where it's a mandatory training. And I know everyone hates the word mandatory, but we try to make it fun and worthwhile for everyone and, and pull you know together some good information. But talking about what PTSD is, why trauma and substance use go hand in hand, which I think is really beneficial because a lot of people have the idea or, or the um, their their thinking is just quit drinking or just quit using drugs. I don't understand why you can't stop. And it's like, well, there's some reasons for that. So kind of giving some context there. We do a lot of family education too, helping spouses to better understand the risk that's involved with this job. I think it's a very noble profession and I would never discourage anyone from becoming a a firefighter or other kind of first responder, but I think it's important for spouses to understand, you know, my first responder is 
checked out and can't stop scrolling through the phone and, you know, irritable because of what happened on shift, not because they don't love us anymore. So we try to give some of that background too. So people can stay together. We know that divorce is really high in the first responder community. So trying to give them information as well and information around communication, which is huge for any couple, but certainly in this um, line of work as well. Also do a lot of education, speaking of cultural competency to providers and giving some background on day-to-day sort of structure within the fire service, their culture, what to expect, how to best kind of build rapport and get buy-in with this community if you want to be specialized in that way. And then we've also, which is Sometimes my favorite educational opportunities is when we go and we talk to HR and city managers and we fight back and forth about why behavioral health is important and you need to stop thinking about your bottom line and start thinking about your people and investing in them because you're not going to have any community protectors if you you know keep the focus on financials. So um, lots of different educational sort of offerings that we have. We do those in person and virtually. We started a webinar series back in May of 2020 and have covered so much ground on that um, on that platform and something I'm really proud of. People call me Molly with the podcast and you guys are the ones that have the podcast. I'm Molly with the webinars, but um, I think it's a real testament to the the work that I've done as far as education goes. What are some of the common HR? I, I, I love the fact that you're having those conversations uh, because those are, those are tough. Uh, what are some of the HR pushback things that you see and, and how do you counter some of those? I think that would be valuable for the listeners to hear some of that. Maybe they're experiencing some of this uh, in their own in their own agencies. Yeah, you know, um, with HR and city managers, it's kind of like EAP. Sometimes they're really good and they really get it, and other times they just treat the first responders in the same way that they treat the parks and rec people or the garbage people. Um, and they're all just so different and all have their own uniqueness. So a lot of education around, you know, what this job entails. So talking about trauma, how it develops, why it develops, how you can be proactive and preventative and not, you know, put, not wait until again, these crises develop. And then you have to have all these healthcare expenditures because people need to go to a place like center of excellence or chateau or wherever that may be. And, um, you can have some good preventative programs like having people come in and teach yoga or having people like myself come in and, and educate your staff on taking care of themselves. Um, so a lot of just really basic kind of stuff. Um, we've also had a lot of conversations, more heated kind of discussions, I guess, with, you know, the people that are overseeing workers' compensation claims, because those can be pretty costly. So um, again, it's, it's where I come at it as a lot of kind of hindsight, you know, here's what you can do for the next person, you got to pay for this, this person over here that's already struggling, but you don't want to spend, you know, these thousands and thousands of dollars every single time. So be proactive and preventative. How much are you paying to onboard people? You know, that's costly too. So if people are constantly retiring because this job is psychologically difficult or impactful, do something about it. Well, it's also also interesting the conversations that I've had with a few chiefs is 
it actually is if if you go into dollar amounts, right? Because that's what some of these cities and city managers and you know HR and all of these things they they do focus on that. That is a thing in our society and our system, and that's the way it is. But actually helping somebody who is a tried and true firefighter for the last ten years that has gone through some struggles to help him stay for another ten to fifteen years is cheaper and more cost effective than firing him and onboarding somebody new, spending $150,000 to outfit, train this person, do all of these things. So for the leaders out there, I mean, I'm sure you've had that conversation, but it's like, let's keep the people you got that are tried and true. Right. Because they have been there in your example for 10 years, obviously they're dedicated and, and passionate about this work. So invest in them in the same way that they've invested in your community. No one's taking a dig on anyone who is not in the fire or law enforcement or corrections, the, the, these industries. If you're, you know, there's, those are honorable professions in and of themselves with the, as you've referenced, maybe the park service or, or whatnot. But, you know, the, the Gordon Graham piece of it's, if it's predictable, it's preventable really resonates as I'm hearing you that, that, that phrase just was resonating in the back of my brain because uh, we know uh, just through data and numbers and experience, these things are occurring and we know it's going to happen. We train people up. And obviously now, because uh, with your education piece, you even know, hey, the chances of, you know, three out of 10 people sitting in here uh, getting some type of uh, trauma based uh, illness is is pretty high or whatever that I'm, I'm making that number up. But uh, now we can see that and say, let's move towards that piece and through your education piece, even with the HR, uh, connection, I just find it fascinating that you're having these conversations and specific to our listeners, maybe they're yearning for that type of information as well as how can I have these conversations? So if, is there any kind of in the weeds, uh, like bullet points that have resonated with you that were successful in having, having those kind of conversations? Well, I'll give a shameless plug here on our webinar platform, um, which can be found at ifffrecoverycenter.com. We archive all of our webinars that we do. And one of them was a labor and management webinar where we had a fire chief and a union um, executive board member and myself uh, all had a conversation about how to navigate those those conversations and how to get everyone talking about what's important for them and making sure that everyone is feeling heard. So I would encourage people to check that one out. Um, but as far as, you know, having those conversations, I think you've got to, it's difficult to say because each person's different and each, you know, city is going to look different. But if you can find one person in administration that cares a little bit about behavioral health, you know, get them on your side and see, you know, what it is that, how can we tailor this messaging to get everyone else on board or at least listening? Um, so I think starting there is, is helpful, but you know, money, like we've said, is an important factor in it. So finding these free resources like myself that are willing to come and have these conversations so you don't have to walk it alone or do it alone is probably helpful because that gets some easy buy-in. No one has to pay for it. Um, so 
I think it's just starting really at that kind of most basic level and, and educating on why this is important and, um, you know, looking at themes and healthcare costs and that sort of thing. I mean, you can really kind of pull it together and say, Hey, look, this is a problem because we had X amount of people struggling with it or X amount of peer support calls last year. And they were all centered around this theme. So what can we do about it to invest in our people? Like Austin was saying, I I love this education piece and I, I want to give you the kudos that you deserve in that. Cause there's not a lot of time or there's not a lot of people that are out there doing that, uh, you know, truthfully to the, to the level that you are doing. I think, you know, every part of the country has a small subset of trainers and education, you know, and everything like that. But I love what you're doing uh, nationally uh, with the Center of Excellence. And then that wants to bring me into my next thing that I love and I want you to talk about is if you've done all these education pieces and somebody is still struggling, somebody is still drinking heavily and impacting their family, their job. Let's get into the residential side of the center of excellence. Talk about how people, first off, how people get a hold of you and, and how they go about getting into it. What does it look like? Length of stay, you know, all of those, the meat and potatoes of, of people that need the help. What do they yeah. do? Yeah. So I think the, the most important piece that people should know about the center of excellence is because it's a partnership between the company that I work for and the IFF. It is just for those active and retired members of the IFF. So if you've been a part of the union and you left in good standing, or you're currently a part of it, or you're retired, you would be eligible for the center of excellence. So that's kind of the biggest criteria that people would have to meet. After that, um, we are licensed in primary mental health and primary substance use. So what that means for you know the lay person that doesn't have that clinical background is you don't just have to have a substance use problem to come to our treatment center. You can be struggling with depression that you've had since adolescence or trauma that happened in your childhood or in a military career or stuff that's related to the job or your marriage or your family. We really treat almost everything that falls under that behavioral health umbrella. Um, and we're in, I probably should have started here too. It's located in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, um, outside of DC and, and Baltimore. So we're on the East Coast, but we see people from all over the, the country and all over the international. So up in Canada as well. And uh, people are usually there with us for about 35 days. They're working on lots of different things. It's a holistic program. We kind of take a, a medical approach to it in that our medical director is a psychiatrist. Her name's Dr. Abby Morris, and she's super skilled in the first responder community. And, you know, she's going to put on her psychiatrist glasses and hat and view people in that way. But then she's also been working in this field with this population for so long that she recognizes that a lot of firefighters don't want to take an antidepressant and maybe they'd like to talk about supplements and, you know, lifestyle changes that could maybe re uh, decrease their anxiety or their depression. So she's really creative in her work. So a medical approach, but also holistic. What does this person want? What do they need? What makes sense to them? Um, a lot of group work. So we really kind of pride ourselves on the fact that it is just IAFF members. So when you think about the level of 
ability to relate with one another. It's pretty strong there um, because they're all firefighters, paramedics, or dispatchers, um, and very few dispatchers really because not many are included in their unions, but we have seen some. So um, the level of, of peer support is pretty high. Lots of trauma and stress work. Mindfulness is a big piece of the program too, because most of our clients, we follow them for 18 months post-discharge and ask lots of questions about aftercare and stigma and and all sorts of things. Um, But one of those is how quickly did you get back to full duty? And at three months, pretty much all, uh, usually around the 70, 75% mark are back to full duty. So how can we prepare these people for this job that is not changed and isn't going to change, but you're now this changed individual? How can we help you to to maintain in that space? We also do some family work as well. Um, I'm the family resource coordinator as if I didn't have enough titles and roles in this um, setting, but um, also family resource coordinator. So we connect them, you know, spouses and family members to treatment providers as well back in their local communities. We'll do some family work while people are on campus with us. And then of course, intensive trauma work, Um, lots of different modalities being utilized there. But you know, how did you get here, which usually there is some trauma component to it, I would say 65%, if my memory serves me correct, are meeting criteria for PTSD at the time of admission. So we spend a lot of time um, working on that. But also, you know, equine therapy, yoga, some of these things that are not as Um, that don't come to mind maybe as quickly when you think about residential treatment. Um, We're trying to just open their eyes to all the different things that are out there because we got to find them similar providers when they get home. So we want to expose them to those resources while they're with us so they can maintain and um, improve beyond, you know, what they did at the center of excellence. The centers of excellence is located where tell the the listeners where, where is it located? Upper Marlboro, Maryland. So that's about 45 minutes outside of DC and Baltimore airports. It's in kind of more of a rural setting in Maryland. Um, And it's been there for six years. It has kind of changed hands since the actual property was um, established. I think at one point it was a missile, a nuclear missile site, something or other. Um, So we had to dig those up out of the ground when we bought the property. I think it was a boys camp at one point. So it's really residential in that treatment and living is happening in this one space on 15 acres in Maryland. Eventually, we will have a West Coast Center of Excellence, too, down in Hemet, California, which is just right outside of Temecula. Um, But that is um, still in the works, and we hope that that'll be open sooner rather than later. But right now, we just have that one on the East Coast. Can you talk real quick on on the importance of being in treatment with other firefighters from across the country? Because when I talk to people on the front end, I always say, "I, I love our program. But about 50% of the stay is who you're with and what you what you talk about, how deep you get the the brother and sisterhood that you bond that you that you gain from from bonding. You are talking about things that you've never told anyone else in the world to somebody you've known for two days. Talk about what the feedback you get from from members that attend with with different people. Well, I think 
having been on campus and really witnessing it so many times, what I think is really cool as far as the bonding goes is one, they all know what it means to be a firefighter. Two, they pretty much all have very similar experiences and similar reasons for admission. Um, But then I think the third part is a lot of firefighters, and it's probably true in other first responder occupations, but a lot of firefighters, their identity is so much tied to that firefighting community and that work. So they're able to instantly bond with one another because that's what they're used to doing anyways, you know, on, in their shift work at the station houses. So we see that replicated on campus as well. But um, you know, one of my favorite things that we do at the Center of Excellence, and it, it kind of to me, breeds some of that closeness is this modality called cognitive processing therapy. And it is a trauma therapy where people are um, kind of changing the narrative in how they view their traumas and the, you know, the experiences that they've had and processing what are called stuck points. And just to give kind of an example, let's say there was a medical call and, um, you know, maybe there was something that happened that was out of the control of these responders and the stuck point is, you know, if only I had not gotten tired giving CPR, then this person would have been saved. And they're working through that stuck point of, well, you're only a human and you can only do so much and, you know, trying to process that and change their thinking around it. And what's cool is in those groups, there's probably someone else that has that same stuck point or has had a similar experience. Maybe it's not as traumatizing to them, but they can relate to it. And then they're able to have this really good dialogue around, well, you know, when that happened to me or when I experienced something similar, here's how I got through it. And I have to think too that people in those groups, when they get back to the job and maybe they experience something similar, then they can recall those conversations and apply those same messages. So to me, that's like the essence or the core of peer support work. And I mean, it's happening in the therapeutic setting. And then these people go back to their departments and I I have to assume that they continue that forward with, you know, their peers as well. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's what came to mind when. No, it did. It did. And, and I think that everything that you just said does pass on. Cause I was just actually talking to uh, the wife of a firefighter that attended center of excellence just a couple of months ago. Uh, he had the greatest experience, loved it. It's doing amazing changed his life. Uh, But that was what she was talking to me about was the fact that he's now bringing in some of those principles and some of those beliefs back into the department. And and I think that's extremely important. Molly, thank you so much for for coming on. I I love this conversation. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, how do they go about that? Well, you can call me or text me on my cell phone. It's um, 240-357-4800. Three eight, or my contact information or email address rather is on the Center of Excellence's website, which is iaffrecoverycenter.com. You could also go to advancedrecoverysystems.com, which is our parent company. That's who I work for and who partnered with the IAFF. Um, but just doing a quick Google search too of me, Molly Jones, Center of Excellence. Um, my LinkedIn comes up. I think other ways of contacting me like I don't know my contact information is just swirling around I think in the ether um so or the interwebs uh but 
You can call me. You can email me. You can text me. Whatever works. This has been an absolutely delightful uh, conversation, uh, Molly. Thank you so much for giving your time up to uh, to the podcast, and uh, I really appreciate your insight uh, and points of view on this. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I've enjoyed being here with you, and um, hope to have another conversation soon. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Care Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.